This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by DeckSecure and Stream. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Dorian Smiley about APIs and the evolution of serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 123. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And we are back. We are back. It's good to see you, Rebecca. It's been a while. I think the last time I saw you was at reInvent. You know, that's almost true. But the last time I saw you was that wonderful Christmas card you sent me of you and your family. Oh. And it legitimately warmed the entire mailbox. I was so happy. So I've seen you and your whole family on my fridge for a little while now. Thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I'm just glad that my the rest of my family is attractive enough to make the card look good. Because um, if it was just me, it probably wouldn't. But <laughs> anyway, so speaking of um, holiday cards, uh, how was your how was your holiday break? My holiday break was really great. I think we skipped one little thing considering we've been on break. We didn't tell anyone what they are listening to. If you oh. <laughs> maybe want to that... go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, we're, you are listening to Serverless Chats, and we are back um, starting 2022. Um, we've got a whole bunch of great guests lined up, so uh, this should be super exciting. So why don't you tell us quickly, uh, Rebecca, about your holiday break, because I know you did something exciting, and then we can get into the show. Oh, okay. That's very sweet. Uh, holiday break was great. I got to spend Christmas itself with my grandfather back in Virginia and then I flew directly from there to Chile in Argentina and so I spent some time there awesome. living my past life in Spanish and seeing some old friends and doing some strange and fun and normal things on the in the summertime side of the world yeah that's amazing. That's amazing. Good for you. I did absolutely nothing other than spend some time with friends and family so um, but also also not that bad. Um, so anyways, let's introduce our guest. You want to introduce our guest? I would love to introduce our guest today. Our first guest of 2022 is the VP of Technology at Brainly, Dorian Smiley. Hey, Dorian. Thank you for joining us. Hello, hello. No problem. No problem. Excited to be here. Very excited to be here. I love the show, by the way. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Uh, so why don't you tell the audience a bit about yourself and then a bit about what Brainly does? I hear it's uh like the biggest how do they make that joke around like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna ruin this joke about someone being huge in germany but like brainly is hu huge in poland anyway i ruined the joke but we're not gonna cut it out we're gonna leave it in it's the first joke okay. of 2022 okay. first joke of 2022 all right it can only it can only get better it can from only here. get better <laughs> Uh, so what do I do? Uh, you know, VP of technology at Brainly, I spend my days figuring out ways to make engineering teams go faster, right? So like, how do we scale? How do we grow this company to potentially thousands of engineers contributing to a mono repo and crank out product as fast as possible that delivers value to our customers, right? So like, my and that, that involves a lot of things from things that are consumer facing to things that are, you know, fully back end, you know, tools we use, line of business applications, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Brainly is an ed tech platform. We, we specialize in homework help, but we're quickly expanding into other areas. Um, the We have 350 million uh, unique monthly users. I believe we're in 10 different countries. Um, we have had tremendous success in building online communities, and we continue to sort of advance that in 2022. We have some really exciting things in the works, um, but I can't talk about here. <laughs> but um, the future is looking very bright for Brainly, and I'm generally passionate about changing education generally. Um, I think that, like, for example, I work independently to advance software apprenticeships. Uh, we may have some exciting announcements at Brainly soon about that, but non-traditional tracks towards becoming a software engineer that expands the hiring pool. It, it, it sort of includes more people uh, who might not traditionally be able to afford a four-year education, but also people who don't want to go to a four-year school. I myself am self-taught, right? Like I didn't go to college for computer science. I spent 20 years, you know, learning the trade. But so I'm generally passionate about uh, non-traditional tracks in education generally. Uh, so Brainly's like an amazing place to be for me. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And I and I, I totally agree with you on the non-traditional tracks. Um, you know, yeah. for for sort of learning not only software development but um, just so many cool things and so many great resources out there now for yeah. for people that want to change careers. And it's funny, I. I 
don't remember who's you know sort of had this quote, but basically it was like no matter what industry you're working in or what company you're working for, like all companies are software companies now, right? So yep. pretty much no matter what company you work for exactly. um, is going to have some sort of IT, some sort of web or cloud or um, whatever team that is you know is building software. And um, I mean even if that's not you know even if you're not you know f learning how to be a computer scientist or a full on engineer, I mean, even just like getting your feet wet with some of that stuff is really great. So uh, yeah, that's that's good stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, that's me. <laughs> so that's what I do. So let's well, let's talk about Brainly a little bit, um, because I do want to get into, you know, what you're doing, again, is is crazy. And of course, I think that if um, if anybody was a parent or has been a parent with with school age children over the course of yep, the last yep. 20, 24 months or 23 months, 22 months now, whatever it is, um, you know, uh, certainly, you know, uh, have a love hate relationship with online learning, probably and that sort of, you yep. know, Zoom <laughs> calls and whatever. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, is well before uh, well before the pandemic hit and you know and we basically shifted to complete online instruction which may not be the best for some people but there was always these homework helper things or you know uh, like math you know, math quizzes and all these kind of things that you know education or at least homework a lot of that started moving online Google classroom all these other things of just really integrating classrooms or integrating education into the web and making it I think more accessible I mean even what was great about the pandemic was uh, Nothing was great about the pandemic, but I will say that when students couldn't go to school in person, even though some kids might have been in school and some kids weren't, the kids that had to miss school for whatever reason, um, they could also participate online. There was a lot of that hybrid stuff going on, which I thought was you know sort of an interesting approach. But anyways, let's get into what Brainly does, because you're not just, um, you know, it's not just about a, a platform for learning or for homework help or building community stuff. It's actually really, really interesting from a technology standpoint, which again is you know, is one of the things we like to talk about here. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of that infrastructure, you know, that's powering Brainly and, and really like what what are you doing there that is using serverless? The infrastructure question is tough because I don't know what I'm allowed to say, like in terms of exactly how our infrastructure is built. Um, like I said, we do operate in 10 different countries and that machinery is pretty complicated, like in mm -hmm. terms of how we service those markets, how we provide a thin layer of customization that allows us to individualize that experience and one that is tailored for that market. So um, I would, I, I think I can generally say that we heavily leverage container services. We're fully on AWS. Um, we primarily use serverless for line of business applications today and back office applications. So um, common things that my teams are using serverless for would include things like um, our dashboards that monitor team health, that monitor um, pull requests that um, are looking at our pipelines and, um, you know, that are generally used by engineers to figure out how healthy are the teams around them and how are things going. So that's the primary application for us. But we are also heavily looking at it for um, transaction processing, event streaming, um, things where you don't, there isn't a low latency requirement that's in like single digits <laughs> uh, or maybe, you know, 10 or 12 milliseconds in there. So like we're, we have some really crazy latency requirements around our backend services for that power our, our front end applications and often serverless falls short to meet those requirements globally for all of our users. And, and we aren't, we, we just can't produce the kind of performance typically that we get out of the way we figured out how to deploy container services. So we, we have this really amazing backend infrastructure that some really incredible people have built over the years um, that is producing some tremendous results. And, and, and it shows up in our SEO scores and our core of vital scores. We can see where that's made huge improvements. So we measure that impact and we, we have compared sort of serverless equivalents. But I think for the for our, our customers and, and our consumers who use our product, where serverless will have the most impact will probably be in event streaming and transaction processing, where we're looking to compose our future infrastructure. I don't again, I want to get too into what we do currently, but I can't say like our future infrastructure um, will generally be more of a fast environment where a lot of the, the the heavy lifting and the complicated things that take time will probably be composed out of this polyglot sort of Lambda environment where we heavily leverage like step functions or maybe we write our own Saga controllers to quickly compose these things. And I think that might be the future of, of some of the things that we're doing sort of in the consumer space. Um, but yeah, we're, 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 we're containers, we're EKS for a lot of the, the consumer facing things. Yeah. Ooh, you, um, I had this question. I was like, well, first, I really want to know why serverless, but I think you read my mind on that. <laughs> However, I did have this, and so maybe I was thinking about it wrong, and I would love for you to take a moment to explain it. I was imagining that serverless would come into play, certainly 
um, that like brainless traffic follows the peaks and spikes of a school year in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like school days, school days, school days rather. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's like yeah. multiple Christmas day sorts of events for retail, but like for school that happens multiple times, not only across a day, but across a year, across seasons. Um, and so I was wondering if I was anywhere in the ballpark in terms of what, like, what were some of those discussion points that you all had around serverless and those conversational directions where you're like, hey, if we're trying to match these peaks and valleys, and we're trying to map them and so, sort of like overlay them. Was that one of the discussion points or is that something that you're going to say like, ah, your assumptions real wrong there? I think your assumptions wrong in that the limits imposed by AWS would make any discussion about serverless mute. Like in terms Mm -hmm. of like, like how could I plan an infrastructure in which I could deal with those peaks and valleys in a predictable way, model it ahead of time and know what my costs are going to be or like within, you know, plus or minus 20% or something of like what I'm trying to figure out. Um, AWS makes that virtually impossible at this scale, you know? So like it's, I think that's like, and also like the need for shared memory is really real when you're trying to reach latencies that are in the single digits, you know? So like it's, it's just not, I think a lot of it was thrown out just from the standpoint of like, we know what our requirements are. We, we have a general idea of where the traffic is at and that everything with AWS would be highly uncertain if we chose serverless at that scale, if that makes sense. Um, so it's, it's not, we didn't even really get to the stage where we would be modeling, like how would we scale the system up or down? It was really like that, that option is off the table unless we were to like somehow negotiate a deal with AWS where we would have like infinite scaling or something, you know? Um, so yeah, that's sort of where we landed, I think. Well, I'd like to, before Jeremy asks his next question, I would like to point out, do a little math here. I am O for two. And so, uh, <laughs> 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 we're really going to try to bring it, bring up the game here a little. <laughs> so I, you know, what's funny is, um, is again, I, I've heard this before too, like especially serverless at scale, it's one of those things where it's great for the highs and lows, you know, that for certain traffic, uh, it's great. Yeah, but yeah. then you run into these things where you have very, very, you know, constant workloads that, that's, you know, scale up and down. And again, fast gets very, very expensive. I mean, it's yep. it's uh, it's the, the actual compute cost that they charge you for Lambda is like, I don't know, a hundred times what it would normally be if you were to manage it yourself. There's obviously benefits to having that, you know, and, and certainly from Absolutely. a, I think from a smaller scale or for startups, you know, setting up Kubernetes clusters and doing some of these other things are probably, you know, way, way too complex and you can't move as fast as you can. And when you finally get to the, you know, to a scale like Brainly does, I mean, it makes sense, you know, that you got to try to find cost optimizations. It would be great if serverless could get to that point um, where you had those cost optimizations. But uh, what I heard you mention sort of earlier when you're talking about kind of what you're doing with serverless, it sounds like a lot of it is not just DevOps. I mean, I know you mentioned going into the into the idea of doing um, uh, of doing the eventing with it as well. But just in terms of those use cases that you have internally, um, that's another big thing that we see with serverless all the time where it's like teams say, well, we want to automate this or we want to do this or we want to run, you know, we need to build a dashboard internally and we need to query five different APIs and assemble some data, whatever. That serverless is really sort of a really good tool for that. Absolutely. Um, Let me try and explain the value I was able to generate for, for my team. So we built a serverless dashboard for the technology org and it's monitoring everything from personal metrics to like how, how many commits people are doing and which teams are, are issuing the most commits to visual regression testing, to um, code quality and automation, to the, the team health of like our bug cycle time, our core of vital scores, like everything is power. And, and that is delivering like huge amounts of value, right? It's, it's allowing our infra teams to go out and make improvements and to, find ways in which we can innovate on the te- in the technology org to build new tools that are solving real problems that we see through this. And what was awesome about that is like serverless turned my four developers who are dedicated to that project into like 50, because you know? there was right. like none of the infrastructure or machinery that we need to run our, our container services and those clusters was required to get this up and running. And in fact, we had, we had a lot of benefits from automation that was already built by people in like our production infra teams and our office infra teams. And that's another thing that's great about serverless is that if you engineer it right, not only is your work product able to plug into these other environments, what I mean by engineer it right in that like you 
you properly use Lambda the way it's supposed to be used, where you, you know, encapsulate, like use layers as you would use an L7 proxy, or um, make sure that your handler is con contains the details of the Lambda protocol and nothing else, you know, right. like you use a, an SDK function that takes a value object and returns a value object, right? Because we built all of this internal machinery that way, it's able to be used downstream in ways we can't predict, right? So like our, our functions that are doing things like you know, returning aggregates of, you know, metrics that are in DynamoDB or um, that are being used for visual regression testing, those can be leveraged in pretty much any workload in Brainly, whether you're running serverless or whether you're not. But I think it was like serverless puts you in a mindset in which you sort of disaggregate all these things and you're able to like reuse the code more effectively. And so to me, that that is setting us up for like future growth for the inter internal side that is going it's, to, it's like a springboard basically. Um, and so... Yeah, serverless delivers a whole lot of value, not only in like the tools we're able to build and how fast we're able to build them, but I also think the, the mindset, the way it forces you as an engineer to figure out how to write your code in the most effective way possible um, just has value to the organization by itself, right? If, if a software auditor was to come in and look at that, you would get A plus marks, right? So right. like, whereas like unopinionated environments like Kubernetes or, well, not Kubernetes necessarily, like say Docker and container services kind of allow the developer to do whatever they want. And sometimes that's dangerous. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Right. So I find a lot of value in serverless beyond just um, how efficient it can make a team. It's sort of the mindset it puts you in as a developer. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Dexsecure. Dexsecure empowers web developers by automating tasks that are essential for every website, freeing up developer time to focus on building. Dexsecure currently has three products to help your team. Their web asset optimizer optimizes content like HTML, images, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, videos, and more. Their third-party optimizer takes care of all your third-party assets, and their intelligent network optimizer enhances the performance and resiliency of your website. Dexsecure also has an open source product called OpenDexsecure, a cloud agnostic edge development framework. Now what I love about OpenDex is that the developers can jump straight into product building and not worry about dealing with setup and all the other roadblocks that come from the complexity and configurations of other popular CDNs. If you're interested in trying Dexsecure's products, you can for free. Just visit Dexsecure's website at dexsecure.com to sign up and learn more. That's D-E-X. ECURE.com. So you had said a, a very nice slogan. I actually wrote it down. I was like, Jeremy, that's a nice slogan. But uh, <laughs> how it can turn four developers into 50, right? Yeah. And I'm yep. wondering if with those uh, four developers plus 46, those 50, better math this time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you could tell us about like how you're stack ranking some of the, the high level projects that you're you know hoping to tackle, let's say in the first half of this year, what you think they're, they'll be focused on in terms of serverless and Brainly. Well, a lot of the priorities aren't being set right now by um, by priorities that I have for my team or my org. They're being driven by more macro forces um, and also like higher level goals the company has. So, sure. yeah, I mean, to, to answer you, a lot of the initiatives that I wanted to to get through were sort of shelved in favor of working on these things that deliver immediate value uh, to our investors and to our users. Um, it's hard to make the argument sometimes you know, that they relate somehow. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not, I'm not saying that there isn't a benefit to our investors or our users. Should we prioritize these things that I initially wanted to do? It's, it's just where the priorities are at today and, and where we can have the most impact. But if I were in a perfect world, like if I, if I were to go back and look at how I set my priorities originally, I think the thing that like we're most focused on is how do we get pull requests done faster, right? So like the pull request bottleneck is a real problem, especially at organizations like ours. And, um, and we're scaling quickly, right? So we're hiring new engineers all the time. They need to get onboarded quicker and the product teams are being measured by what they're delivering. And so often the, the bottleneck in that whole process is how good is our training? How good is our boilerplate? How good is our code automation? And how good is the PR automation that sits on top of it, right? And so what's interesting here is we've chosen like TypeScript to write most of this automation. Um, and, and we use that in our GitHub actions that do the, the code review. There's a, an amazing tool from um, Facebook called JS CodeShift that does uh, AST analysis. And what we mm -hmm. did is we incorporate that into our PR review to find anti-patterns. Um, we also have our own linters and our own linter rules we've written. 
But what's interesting is that we've got also this whole SDK that we built for Lambda and that powers our dashboards. And all these things live together. They live in one mono repo. You're able to compose quickly. And I consider GitHub Actions serverless as well. Like for us, it's it's basically identical in the patterns. And so we have this beautiful SDK that is now enabling things like zero PR review for affected code paths, right? So like if you're writing in a code path that we determine you your domain owns, you don't need our review. <laughs> you know? So go ahead, because we're relying on the automation we wrote to review that code and verify it's safe. You know, right. you're not doing anything you shouldn't be doing. That's a productivity boost that is just like mind blowing, right? Like when you when you get into something like that, it has immediate value to the organization because you can say, you remember all those problems you were having getting those PR reviews done? <laughs> They're gone, right? You know, we're not there yet. We're we're trying to get there, uh, but right. I think that's like to me, like when when I put it at a priority level, it's like what gets the code through the pipeline fastest, and what's a what? How do we get to composable software, right? So that's those are the two things that I've kind of ranked the priorities. And so the immediate one though is like code through the pipeline faster. How do we do that? How do we leverage our serverless approach with uh, GitHub Actions, and how do we find reuse for that code down the road? You know, and there might be other applications for it we haven't thought of at this point. But we know that the way we engineered it and the way we wrote it is that it could drop into any Lambda function tomorrow. Like you could automate that incorporation. You know, so we we use the NX dev kit for all of our code automation. You could easily like just write a dev kit function that or a dev kit uh, fun, yeah, dev kit function that is gonna go ahead and pre-generate your boilerplate to include any one of our SDK functions or a number of them, you know. Uh, but that's that's where that's how I rank it. Like how much code can we get through the pipe and and sort of um, how how well can we use this to compose software and how can we compose the system out of these functions? Composability and throughput. Right, it. yeah. I mean, and even unrelated to serverless, just this idea of, of moving code quickly through the pipeline. I mean, you always have yep. this thing where, um, you know, if you've got a PR that's open for more than a day or two days and you've got hundreds of developers committing oh, and crazy. submitting PRs, like yeah. the second that PR doesn't get merged, uh, like you're going to have to review it again and update it and, and totally. you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, merge everything back into it from the main branch or whatever you're doing. And so that yep. ability to move code quickly, I think that's another thing, too, for me. Um, uh, and I know that uh, Rebecca has a follow-up question, but I just, for me, this is one of the biggest things. It's like the faster you can get code into production safely, um, yep. it's just, it's a huge morale boost. We talked about this with Charity Majors and we talked about it with um, uh, with Brian Scanlon, like just this, uh, the ability to get code to production fast, as fast as possible is a, not only just a huge product productivity boost, it's a huge, you know, just morale boost for, uh, you know, for your developers. Big time, big time. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a funny article called "Tackling Pull Request Fatigue." Right? Like, like I remember one day I was like reviewing. I, I don't know how many hours I spent. I was at Brainly, and I was review, I think I was in like hour three of PR review, and I was looking at one that had three hundred files plus modified. Oh, no. and I was just like, I was like, oh my god, like this can't continue. Uh, but remember when I was telling you about like certain technologies lend themselves to good developer hygiene, you know, right. and. And thinking in a serverless mindset, what do you? How are you thinking, right? If you if you really distill it down, you're thinking in terms of isolates. You're thinking in terms of environments where your function isn't part of this environment that's persistent, and you don't get to write all this sloppy code that lets things hang around and you know like um, leads to, to to problems down the road and a big ball of goo that you don't understand. You decompose problems into really simple things, right? And then you compose those simple things to make complex things. A good example of that is like when you're composing something in AWS step functions from Lambda, right? And you can even do that in a polyglot environment because AWS doesn't care what language you wrote those functions in. Now imagine trying to do a polyglot environment in Docker with, you know, container services. Right. Like, right? Like it makes hard problems simple and on a certain level it forces the developer into a mindset where we don't get 300 files to review. We get several PRs with small bits of functionality that then gets composed up into a broader system. And, and like, this is only the result of having adopted serverless in 2017, because I saw, I saw the future for it and going through the several years of like figuring this all out, um, and, and coming up with patterns we know work and then realizing that like, yeah, serverless was brilliant in that even in this really abstract way, they're leveraging compute. They've forced us into this paradigm of like decompose the problem into something simple and then compose something complex out of that. Right. So like, I think there's. 
there's that overlooked part of what serverless is. When people talk about, like, I remember years we were talking about what is serverless? What is server? What is it? It's, there's <laughs> right. servers. It's not. There's it's not like there are no servers, right? Like, what is it? To me, it's Bad this name. really Bad interesting name, right? way yeah. to to promote simplicity and software design. You know, and um, fast is really a reflection of that. You know, it's it's like decompose the problem into composable parts. Well, that's fast. You know, um, it's just we didn't have a runtime to do that for a long time. Serverless kind of gave us that runtime. Right. I. You had said it yourself, you've read, uh, read my mind again, but I loved your post around PR fatigue. And what I, <laughs> what I think is interesting too, is like this talking about this idea of productivity boost. I actually, I think a lot of people who are listening are going to be in your similar space in terms of, you know, we're at the beginning of the year, we have, uh, we see a way to get to very specific goals. Maybe those goals do or do not end up being like taken on the table or, you know, some of them end up being shelved, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think this idea around productivity boost, right? It's not just to eliminate PR fatigue is not one of the inputs. It's like you end up making people more productive, not because they have a better tool to make the input, but because it eliminates the thing that destroys their inner spirit on the output, oh, yeah. right? And so like, there's actually a way to boost productivity, not about like, you know, how do we give you a better keyboard or how do we make sure that your like code environment is like easier to read or whatever it is. It's really about that output of not being like, then I finish this thing and I'm like deflated. And so totally. I'm wondering how, to expand this question into those ideas around like, uh, like I, I think if you, I'm sure you framed a lot of things like, hey, how productive can we make our developers and how productive do we want this engineering and development team to be? How um, how have some of those conversations when you have been able to, to implement the things or get them on the roadmap for 2022, what have some of the successful conversations gone like? And I'm curious, cause I think, I think a lot of people are probably in your similar position, right? Where they're like, we are missing out on these like very productive moments that actually empower the team to do way better for the next 12 months, to feel better, to stay longer, to be more excited about their work, et cetera. And so I don't know if you can talk about any of those like conversational points or maybe at a high level oh, yeah. moments that have been like super yeah, at successful. High level, yeah, for sure. Uh, the first is have a fantastic boss. Right? So, like, <laughs> that's that's pri you know, priority number one because they're gonna help you give you the freedom to, to do what they know needs to be done. And so just have a good boss and make sure that you communicate the value of these things articulately and can measure it, right? So the other side to it is, the reason I built a lot of these tools that we use today is so that I can actually deliver real world value that's measurable, right? So like, right. that's the other thing as a developer, you you have to find KPIs that show the improvement, right? So like, I can drill down into the day and show my boss where we're, our improvements are pushing th more PRs through the pipe. I can show them where we're catching visual regression errors related to a style guide change, right? And I can, and I have the developers on record stating this, right? So like, like we have, we have a lot of evidence to show the value and then your wonderful boss will go out there and fight the battles for you to get a lot of that. And, and that's, I think a, a lot of it is, um, is that it's relationships, right? So you, you got to have the relationships and you got to be able to measure the value and show it, right? It can't be hypothetical. Um, and so, the, but once you do that, I think that uh, this concept you talked about, you touched on, which is related to like the, that albatross around the developer's neck of having to come into work every day, right? It was like, you're sitting down like reviewing 500 line PR or 500 affected file PRs and you got to do that for two hours. Who wants to do that? Like no one wants to come and do that, right? Like right. don't we have machines to do that for me yet? You know, like that's not fun work and it's um, deflating, but also what's not fun work and deflating is working in a stack that is just completely messed up, you know, like you go into a big ball of goo and every time you touch a line of code, you've broken something like that's one of the most deflating, demotivating things as a developer as well. And so like when you pitch serverless integration and some of these design patterns I'm talking about, which you're, you also have to be focused on like, what is the ecosystem I'm creating in which developers are going to have a good experience? And what I find is that it, this whole concept of like how we are moving towards um, building complex systems out of the lowest common denominator, which are the functions. And then we build them kind of on the front end, we're building out of components and into modules and into applications and in serverless we're like for our workloads, we're building out of functions into um, step function workflows into pipelines like event streaming. You know, that's sort of how we're building complexity in the serverless on the backend side. 
but that builds this ecosystem now where people are excited to come to work. You know, it's like right. they, they can actually affect a line of code and we can test it and know it works and they don't have to worry about the surrounding system after that. There are no downstream effects that we can't effectively test for or measure. I mean, there always are, but, you know, in theory, it's a lot better than the big ball of goo that's got five billion lines of code and no one knows how it all relates. And if you change something, the only way you know it broke is to deploy it to production. <laughs> so it's like, right. it's kind of like around that old quote from Rich Hickey that's like, simplicity is hard work, right? You know, like that simplicity is hard work. <laughs> it's really hard. And it's especially hard when you d hand developers a tool that's unopinionated about how you build software. Right. And and often I see that's like the downfall is organizations try to scale to support dozens of developers. And I'm talking about that's a small scale, dozens of developers. Right. That's where they often hit the wall because they've never experienced a framework like, say, the serverless framework or let's just say a custom homegrown framework within a monorepo that is opinionated about an ecosystem that you're working in. And that's what I love about, you know, what you're working on, Jeremy. Um is that it's going to have an opinion. <laughs> you know? so, right, right. Well, yeah. and, and so speaking of, you know, uh, ecosystems and, uh, and and maybe even opinionated, um, you know, piece of this is I think one of the things we've seen a, a huge uh, evolution of over the last several years um, are managed services. And most of those managed yep. services are essentially backed by or fronted, I should say, uh, by an API. And yep, APIs yep. are now encapsulating all kinds of functionality, including full-on data functionality. If you think about DynamoDB, like you're not backing that data up, you're not worrying about scaling those servers. You're doing that. You're just making an API call, and literally everything else happens behind the scenes for you. You've got Fauna, you've got you know MongoDB Atlas that's launching a new serverless version. So you've got all these different um, APIs that are really you know forming. Um, almost where it's like you, you kind of only need glue code in some cases to just kind of stitch a few different things together. So um, I know you you wrote an article too, speaking of articles you've written, um, about the API economy essentially you know, leapfrogging serverless. So just give us the premise of that article and, and maybe some of your thoughts on it. So the, so the premise was is that um, you know, serverless in reality is AWS specific, like it's not, it hasn't yet delivered on the abstraction between all of, it's not multi-cloud and it's not edge. It's really about AWS. And you still have to glue together a whole bunch of things to make an architecture, right? So like, I still need to glue together my lambdas. I still need to write cloud formation for a lot of things because not everything is written into a, a like a um, an open source component that abstracts away that complexity. So I'm still writing a whole bunch of AWS control plane specific stuff, mm -hmm. right? And along with a whole bunch of other things that I may compose incorrectly, that I may set security inappropriately around, like we can get into arguments about whether um, resource level permissions are appropriate or you should be using something like STS always and you should never assign like resource level permissions to anything in AWS. Like we can argue about that all day, but but the point is, is that there is a lot of work that goes into that. I mean, we're spending more time doing that than we are writing the code. I could write a function in like 30 seconds, you know? like, right. especially if you have a generator sitting on top of it, you know, but then I spend three days troubleshooting why it doesn't work when I deploy it to AWS, right? So like, and that's even if you're using the serverless framework and, and good abstraction tools and it's still not multi-cloud, right? So, but if I were to think of like, what is the perfect way I could abstract that away? Well, one of them is an API. And especially if you think of something like Fauna, right? Like where you have this distributed database, it's amazing. It does what I want it to do. Or something like dgraph where, you know, if I want GraphQL and an actual graph database, mm -hmm. who, who would have thought that would be a right. thing, right? Of course it's a thing, right? Like, but like, I don't need to worry about how they deploy their infrastructure and they could actually solve the multi-cloud problem and I would never know it. I can write my code once and I have the abstraction built in. I'm just making an API call, right? Like I don't, and I don't need to spend any time writing infrastructure as code. And I could actually build an app on Versal and be up and running in a global edge compute network in an hour, you know, without one line of AWS control plane code, which right. I would love. That's, that's sort of like my guiding light. If I can write an app without any AWS control plane specific code, I've achieved something important, you know? Um, and, and I think this is something AWS has got to wake up to, like, like the fact that there's this opportunity cost that's racking up in their balance sheet right now, and they don't seem to understand it, but like people are there, I don't think they're going to suffer that much because like the people building these services are often the abstraction layers built on top of AWS. That's to them, that's a win. You know, they're still going to get the business. Right. What I think they need to pay attention to is that these services that no one is going to use because they're too complicated to deal with their garbage control plane are going to be like this albatross around their neck or this like 
weight sinking them down because they can't just spin those things off tomorrow. You know, there are a lot of people that depend on those things, but they're going to wake up one day and realize that like companies that are solely dedicated to solving those problems, deliver a better developer experience and a better service than their five person team that like spends a lot of time listening to businesses, but never spent one day talking to the developer that uses it, you know? So like, that's why I think the API economy is going to leapfrog serverless. It's the developer stupid. (laughs) (laughs) If you ignore developer experience, you will fail. Like a hundred percent, I don't care what you do. Eventually you're going to fail. Someone will come along and, and crush you. Um, so, but that's why I think it will leapfrog is just that you're able to offer this incredible developer experience and accelerate the outcome, like by an order of magnitude, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's mind blowing. Right. And, and the people working on it are amazing. All the people working in this space of the API economy are just like me. They've had similar experiences. They thought of this years ago. And, and they want to enable a good developer experience. And so to me, that says they're going to win, you know, at least in my mind. So you have this <clears throat> great quote that I'm just going to read directly because wouldn't be able to put it better myself. You say drift. I might read it. Drift, comma, unbudgeted spending, comma. No, I'm kidding. I'll read it like a regular person. <laughs> drift, unbudgeted spending, defective design, and a failure to read the fine print of service limits are a few examples of how IAC can become a countermeasure to serverless success. I think that's like the the most condensed version, right, of what you were just telling us about. Like these yep, moments are exactly. like the countermeasures. And yep. I'm wondering if you see any path toward uh, reversing that for IAC, right? So it sounds like API economy is going to leapfrog. But is there a path where you're like, actually, if you did take step one, step two, step three, right? These are the ways that I see this like coming back into yeah. play. Great question. Yeah, totally. No, I think there is. I actually met with Austin a long time ago, and I told him this directly. I was like, what you need is reference architectures that are easily deployable that solve a use case, right? right. So like, I need event streaming because I want to monitor telemetry data. That's what I want to deploy. And I don't want to configure anything. I want it pre-configured with good defaults, you know? And, and so that would be an example of where you could use serverless and build an infrastructure internally without using an API. You're still going to probably get an API at the end of the day. That'll probably still be your entry point. But you can just go through a catalog and select the reference architecture for the use case you're trying to solve. I need video streaming. You know, that's another one. Or like, I need a, I mean, obviously we already have solutions for like single page web applications. But like, the point being is I need this composable system where I can get a best practice reference architecture that solves real use cases and the defaults are turned on so the developer doesn't have to think about it, you know. And that if there's changes that need to be made to that architecture, they can be rolled out seamlessly without breaking the contract between the thing that's consuming that reference architecture, right? So like, it's so that you're not like causing the drift problems, right? So like, but that's a that's a hard problem to solve. You know, it's not um, it's not easy to solve that problem. So, and especially if you're thinking multi-cloud, that's an even bigger problem. You know? Well, right, right, so, because your yeah. I mean your infrastructure is code, which again people people push for, and I think infrastructure as code is. Um, the best sort of um, scale solution we have right now or the best sort of widely accepted solution we have right now where you get repeatable builds. You certainly don't want people going and configuring things with the console. Um, but IAC, like you said, is essentially you're writing con- you know, AWS control plane or Azure yep. control plane specific configurations. You're picking those primitives, right? And code is a liability. We talked about this with uh, Jay Nair um, when we were, you know, when we had our live show at, at reInvent. And uh, basically that's, Code is liability. The more code you have to write um, and the more things you have to do, and then again, as things change, as they add new features, as Lambda adds a new switch to do something else, all of your code doesn't have it. So now you default to whatever their default is, and then you might have to go back and update thousands and thousands of um, of uh, you know little snippets in your, in your IAC code just so that you can go in and... Um, you know, and, and add this new feature or or maybe even, you know, have a different behavior that may have changed by, by launching something new. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like I, I was so reInvent just happens. And then, you know, I'm still getting through the videos at this point of things I want to watch. <laughs> but sometimes like you just go, dude, AWS has run like five laps around me, you know, like and and then they launched. I don't know how many new, you know, ML related things that I'm still learning about and. Like, I don't know if they realize, like, they're just outpacing the developer and our problems haven't changed. You know, like, the problems I'm trying to solve are the same they were five years ago. But you're, like, releasing 50 new services that all have overlapping, like, functionality. And, like, which one do I choose? You know, like, 
you know, EventBridge would be a good example. Like, do I use SNS? Do I use SQS? Do I use EventBridge? I don't know because no one's really like prescribed. Like, you know, well, look at look at some of the new things. patterns. I don't want to interrupt yeah. you, but some of the new yeah. patterns, just because that that hits a nerve with me, because a lot yeah. of the new patterns are like use EventBridge with yeah. SNS and SQS. Yeah. Like, you yeah. add all these things together. Just keep composing and composing more services. I'm going to use RabbitMQ. I'm going to use RabbitMQ. You know, RabbitMQ pushes to, you know, to uh, EventBridge, which sends off yeah. an SNS that goes to SQS that then is processed by yeah. a Lambda. And then, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, the, the architectures get complex. And like you said, they overlap. Exactly. And so like you really need a team of professionals who specialize in that. I think, you, I mean, that's the beauty of the serverless framework. I mean, you can get a company that is supposed to specialize in this, right? Developers can't be that. Like I, I train developers as part of what I do, but like I could spend the next 10 years training them on AWS and I'll lose all of the productivity relating them to training to our business domain and delivering value there. You know, like, so like, why would I focus my time on on and a valuable resource that needs to deliver growth to our investors on delivering growth opportunities for AWS. I'm not going to, you know, it's like it's, I'm going to find every workaround I can to, to, to make sure that every minute that that developer is spending is delivering actual value for Brainlink, you know, um, and it's not infrastructure as code. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Stream. Stream is an open source SDK that makes it super easy to add chat and activity feed features to your app. You can use it to add a simple live chat feature to an existing app or build an entire application focused on chat and communication. When it comes to chat, Stream fully supports all of the major features that users expect from a modern chat experience. You can send attachments and GIFs, plus it has rich URL previews, threaded conversations, AI-powered and manual moderation, and so much more. Stream provides robust client-side SDKs for popular frameworks such as React, React Native, Flutter, Android, and iOS, and their chat and activity feeds, APIs, and SDKs are available in startup, standard, premium, and enterprise packages tailored to meet your unique needs. Small teams and personal dev projects may also qualify for the free Stream Maker account. Trust Stream to provide your app with enterprise scale reliability. Visit serverlesschats.com slash getstream to check it out today. So I think we're getting to this, this moment of this whole topic that we wanted to talk to you about, which is like, what's the next evolution, not just of serverless, partially of serverless, of course, it's serverless chats, it's in our name, but also of cloud development. And I think part of that is like, sometimes to move forward, you almost need, you know, you kind of need to look back. And it sounds like in a way, it's like the future of cloud development should also be solving my problem that I still had five years ago. Um, <laughs> so I'd love, yeah. uh, I think you articulately describe the problem statement as you would put it in your own words to us. And so instead of taking those, I would love for you to sort of frame the problem statement as you see it in terms of where serverless and cloud development should go next. And then we'll kind of dive into more subtopics around that. So the, the most obvious, like, all right, if we start at the lowest common, the lowest sort of value stage, which is sort of how we build software. And I think we've nailed that in the sense that like we have a best practice way we can compose functions into a way in which we can do complicated things. And I think we've known that for a long time, whether you look at sagas or whether you look at step functions and state machines. Interesting side note, uh, Brainly is hugely adopting finite state machines across all layers of its stack, front end, back end. This is something that's going to make it, in my opinion, make a huge comeback as we really embrace this idea of like composing functions, right? You've got to have some way to control those things. Um, so at the lowest level, it's really like the design patterns that we've had since the 70s and like appropriately applying those and making sure that we don't get ourselves into the big ball of goo problem. So that's that's probably the lowest level. But like, you know, the the next level up from that is this idea of like, how do how do I bypass the control plane? And I think that's where the innovation is going to be. And so I can give you an example of a company you probably um, would never think of that would be creating something like this, and they're not even using serverless technology, right? So like, and and but this is a the only reason I'm gonna talk about this is because it's an insight into where things might go as we try to solve the problem of like how do I bypass the control plane and get this really beautiful architecture that we spent a lot of time figuring out that allows us to compose software. How do we get that to run everywhere? Because that we really have to think of this like. Like if you if you distill it down, when I say run everywhere, I do mean run everywhere. I mean there is a edge network being built in the around the globe right now that involves code being able to run at 
almost any place within cities, you know, like within data centers that are limited cities or whether it's running on cell networks or whether it's running on drones or whether it's running cell, like where cell towers. All right. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, how about this example? Um, Stack Blitz, right? They have web containers. Is your laptop now an edge deployment? Right. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> you know, like it could be. Um, so, th so the problem is like growing at this crazy exponential rate and we want our code to run everywhere and we don't want a control plane in the middle of that. But like a company that has thought about this is Palantir and Palantir has this, uh, product called Apollo. And when I was looking at their diagrams and how they made it work, they inverted control over the CICD system. So like a typical CICD is going to contain the details about like how you push code out to a particular environment, right? Well, what they decided to do was invert control and they created these processes that run in those in specific deployment targets that contain the protocol of how they ship software, right? So they then eliminate all of the need to centralize all of that detail about the deployment target into these agents that are running within the deployment targets out there on the edge and out there in these various clouds. And they have achieved multi-cloud and edge using that approach, right? That inversion of control is genius. And I think we could look to ways we could apply a similar type of solution to run serverless code. They're like little mini runtimes that have figured out how to integrate with the CI/CD system, and they're using a, a basically a um, polling method to figure out when they should pull changes, as opposed to this push system that we have built all of our CI/CD systems around. So I think it's going to take an innovation like that, like where we decentralize the model, because right now the centralized model of um, ACK and CI/CD is just isn't going to scale to that level. Like if that makes sense, I don't know if that sort of makes sense on, on where I see things going. No, it, it does. And actually, I mean, this is one of the things where um, you think about cognitive load for developers and you first start talking about you just check some code into GitHub and some process will yep. run and it will magically appear somewhere and maybe you'll get some <laughs> errors in Sentry or something and you can debug yeah. it later. Um, but, the, but then you switch over to this idea of serverless and you're like, well, you're actually now deploying um, not just this snippet of code that runs that may be part of a larger orchestration system or part of a choreographed, you know, eventing system or whatever. But now you're also putting like connections in between the code where you say, well, if this, you know, this uh, SQS fails, then there's a retries and there's a DLQ and you've got all these other sort of crazy things going there. So that's a huge cognitive leap right there. Now you start saying, oh, by the way, you're deploying to 5,000 edge nodes um, with every deployment <laughs> that you do. And by the way, it's going to have to be like geographically aware. And then you might have some data yep. requirements where only some data can be stored here and you can't replicate it there. And like knowing and then whether or not it fully deploys, like it just, right. it's insane. I mean, that next, that, that, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the point where people fully understand the serverless, you know, mindset or whatever you want to call it. Getting yep. them into an edge mindset um, is even crazier. But I'm just curious, like in terms of you know, I, I get what you're saying. But, but that's, I'm, that's where decomposition is important, right? Like right. You got to decompose the problem. And the way you do that is you make separate companies that worry about specific domains of that problem. And then your team is interacting in that that API economy and in that, that sort of ecosystem that has now emerged with lots of independent companies that focus on that one little aspect of making that work across an edge network, right? And they distill it down into something that you can consume and compose into your system because developers are still... At the end of the day, they need to focus on the use case for their app. And, and that's the only way we're going to get there is through decomposition right. of the problem. You know, so like that's it. But like this concept of leveraging the edge network and deploying everywhere, we haven't, no one's figured it out. Like there is no solution to that. There isn't even a solution to the 2017 problem of multi-cloud yet anywhere, whether it's Vendia, whether it's the serverless framework, I don't care who you are. No one has figured out how to do that yet because it's really complicated, you know, and like, you're t even Terraform, you know, has gaps in there. So like, and, and, and it's debatable even to the extent you could ever have an abstraction layer at the rate the cloud providers move, you know? So like, I think that we have to embrace this idea that we need separate entities that solve these problems individually and that you need to invert control. So to, to basically say, you build a protocol that, that is deployed within these various infrastructures and you, you realize that protocol in the form of like a container that runs and, it's going to encapsulate the details of how to deploy that thing um, rather than trying to right. centralize it into your CI/CD system. I just don't think that's going to work in the long run. Right. And then, and then you have the, you know, the, the idea of having specialists that can apply best practices to those yep. specific pieces of the use cases. And then exactly. maybe a layer on top of that that says, take these, you know, APIs, assemble them into another best practice, uh, you know, for yep. a use case yep. and, and kind of stick all that stuff together. Yeah, we need an we need an ecosystem that's opinionated about how you do stuff. You know, I think at the end of the day, that's really what we're saying is like yeah. 
the way we operate today, there's no opinions. It's up to you to kind of figure out best practice. Um, you're going to need to know a lot the of wheel. The, you're reinventing yeah, and, the wheel. Like developers yeah, reinvent the wheel yeah. all the time. It drives me Every crazy. Day. Yep. <laughs> Every day, you know, and, and, um, and, the, but, and then you're also like building these things and then AWS, like you mentioned, changes the rules or like builds right. a new service that's supposed to replace this thing. And then like, it's, it's just this never ending problem. And as a developer, like we can't be focused on those things. We need to focus on the things that like delivering value to our users, you know? Um, and, and so I do think that this API economy is going to win. I, I see how, I see no world in which infrastructure as code sort of remains in the stack and the way it does today, five years from now. Um, but like in the interim, it's sort of like, what do you do? And what I've been doing is like sort of embracing the lowest value stage on AWS possible, um, which is why we run a lot of stuff in container services already. Like how do we let properly leverage open source and just shift the conversation out of AWS until this, um, better economy, better way of doing things eventually emerges. And if you're running a startup, if, if you know, what I would say is use Versal and use Fauna and use Shopify, like right. don't ever write a line of IAC because you're going to be in this incredibly advantageous place while all the rest of us are trying to figure out how to get there, you know, or, or having to build open source stacks that run on EC2 or something like that, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, I, I think that the future, once we, we do get there for serverless is just, it is the default because the future is the edge and you will compose software. You will not have to, you, you could never have a company that had enough domain knowledge to figure out that edge network, you know, so it's going to have to emerge that way. So before we, uh, go any further, I definitely want to ask, I really appreciate how you're like, all right, you know, use Versal, use Fauna, use Shopify. Yep. And yep. so I think there are two things that I appreciate how you write about when you're evaluating a service or when you're evaluating something new. And you'll, you'll also say like, hey, here's what it's supposed to be good for. And then I'll come back when we've evaluated it further. So yep. I think there's one part of the question, which is like, how do you and your team at like, how do you create those evaluations, right? What are you looking at? And then the second question, specifically about GitHub code spaces, which is something that you said, hey, I'll come back when we when we yeah. decide more about it. It's described as a way to, you know, eliminate the works on my machine problem in it in, yep. in my head that's going to kill a lot of really great memes. Uh, <laughs> so I want to know what that evaluation came out like. What's your take on GitHub's, GitHub code spaces? And are you OK with those memes becoming a thing of the past? <laughs> awesome question. Uh, so, so our process at Brainly is we create this RFC document and we open a Slack channel and then we invite all the key stakeholders and in the RFC, we summarize everything that we've figured out from the research project, right? And then we do a vote uh, up or down on whether to adopt the technology. Um, and so that's the general process and it's worked out pretty well. I mean, you could argue that that may slow the rate of you adopting things, but at the same time, it also prohibits you from the problem of like adopting things that don't work, which is often a bigger problem. Um, so, so, but that's our process. Um, but with GitHub code spaces in particular, the problems we're looking to solve, I have a, I have a couple of them that the, it works on my machine problem is probably the number one source of like preventable slowdowns we get on Slack every day. You know, it's like some tool that doesn't quite, you know, the, the dependencies broken or whatever. Uh, so environments have been a big problem. And what are the ways we've tried to solve that in the past? People have built machine images. That's not, that's kind of a no-go today for small organizations that don't have massive IT teams to maintain those things, keep them in sync. Um, you know, other people have tried to write automation and bash or other types of scripting technologies that try to keep the environment in sync. But even the bash scripts have the, it doesn't work on my machine problem. You know? right. So like, uh, so like that hasn't really been a solution. And so when I saw, you know, virtual IDs aren't new, Cloud9 has been around for a while, but the developer experience was pretty poor in Cloud9. Like, like you're, anything that's going to basically run a video stream over the network or what, you know, isn't ideal. And the beautiful thing about Codespaces is if they've split, you know, the ID into the part that runs in the browser and the client and then the virtual environment that's doing the heavy lifting in the background. That's the right model. You get really good performance from a developer's perspective as you're writing code, and it feels pretty native. You know, it doesn't feel like you're running on this VM somewhere, and it sucks. Um, so, I think they did a good job there. The environments aren't using effective caching, and what I mean by that is like with um, you know StackBlitz web containers in installs are almost instant. You know, and they figured out this really sophisticated caching system to make that work, um, and 
with code spaces, it's slow, like as slow as it would be on your workstation. And so that's, and the environments aren't like pre-warmed. So a lot of times if your environment will shut down or you're coming back to the environment, it takes a while for it to boot up and get, get rolling. So that's kind of frustrating. Like when I turn my, I, I don't ever turn my ID off pretty much. And when I sit right. down, it's instant. I can just start writing my code, having to wait all this time. Like that's actually a problem there. Multiply that problem times a hundred people. You know, that now you've limit my productivity has gone down, not up. <laughs> you know? So like that's a serious problem. The other is uh, with code spaces is there's still problems with it doesn't work on my machine. And the reason is, is that their sec- security model is bad. Like they they decided to leverage SSH keys and .npm RC files to do authorization. So now I still have to configure a certain amount of local setup. And because the VM is scoped to the local developer, they can do whatever they want on there. They can install all kinds of dependencies you didn't know were on there. But save the memes. Save the memes. Right? Yeah. So like, okay, we've just gone around the block. We've <laughs> right. made four right turns and we're, we're back to where we started, right? So like that was my impression. That's where I wonder too, like, um, because yeah. again, what, with serverless cloud, like we took this approach where we're like, look, use a local machine and write your local code and then we'll yeah. sync that code into an actual production ready or production compatible um, instance where you're actually running code as it will be or in an, an environment where it will be the same as when you publish that to production. But I do, yeah. I do, you know, there, you know, and, and Sam Accelerate, for example, has done this thing yeah. now where they do something similar where they're uploading code. Of course, you have to create the environments yourself. Um, it's not quite as easy of a workflow, but same idea. So I'm curious, though, with something like Code Spaces and StackBlitz, which is awesome, by the way, like I played around yeah, with, it's very cool. Um, but yeah. you're right, you're kind of creating your own thing that you can really mess up and isn't necessarily what's going to be what actually gets produced. But I mean, is there is there a happy medium? Do you think that that these online IDEs can help with productivity? Can they solve some of these problems? Do you think people still yeah. need local? They still want to use all those local tools? I mean, what's your what's your thought on that? I think the local IDE is king and it's going to be king for quite a long time mm-hmm. for hardcore engineers that spend 12 hours a day writing code, right. you know. I just don't see that going away anytime soon. And it's because, like, think how much time I spend. Like, our team spend a lot of time just writing documentation on developer hygiene about what keyboard shortcuts you need to know how to use and what IDE plugins you are required to use. You know, like, like it's it's all to maximize the the throughput of the code. You know, but like that, I mean, minutes matter. You know, and so um, I just don't see a world in which you can get the same productivity. Stackblitz is the leader. Like, so if there is a IDE that is web-based that could actually solve this problem, it's probably going to be StackBlitz. And they were smart too, because they have an integrated browser. Yeah. So like that was the de- absolute deal killer with code spaces. They don't use an integrated browser. So hot code pushes are being spit out to, you know, this remote URL that you're on, but it can take like 30 seconds for it to show up. And sometimes it doesn't show up. Right. Right. Versus a millisecond, you know, half a millisecond. Right, right. And it always shows up on my local. I can't even get to the browser tab fast enough to see it refresh, you know, like when I'm using a local IDE. And StackBlitz has figured out how to do that right so that you don't lose that productivity. Now, again, imagine that productivity slowdown multiplied by 100 people. You're right. talking about a very serious productivity loss. So I don't, yeah, I don't think that the virtual IDE is useful there. But where I do see it useful, this is still something I'm exploring, is like for bug triage. So like how do we get a yeah. environment that reproduces a bug, right? Like that's a good one. Um, and, and it also allows you to like le- leverage people who may be junior software engineers going through an apprenticeship program to learn your code base and how you build software, an opportunity to provide actionable bug reports to people so that your bugs aren't sitting in the backlog for, you know, two months or three right. months or whatever it is, right. because no one knows how to reproduce the issue, you know? So, um, I think that that's a really good use case for like a online IDE, that sort of thing. So I think... There are two M's that matter a lot. Minutes matter and metrics matter. Um, and also, you know, love matters, but it's, it's not an M. So. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, right. Well, gentlemen. Exactly. Minutes, metrics, and love. That minutes, could be a, metrics, that could be and a love. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the new developer t-shirt or sticker, man. Minutes, it's metrics, probably, and It's probably love. already greenlit on Netflix. So oh, there just, we go. There we yeah. go. Somewhere there Netflix go. is like, you got to take this podcast down. We, we, we trademarked that. <laughs> Copywritten. Oh um, well, gentlemen, we have arrived at the end of our very first podcast of 2022 with Dorian Amazing. Smiley. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge with the community. How can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that's about all the social media I do. And Medium. Uh, find me on Medium. 
come visit our Brainly Tech blog and uh, brainly.com. Look at our careers. We're hiring. If any of this sounds fun to you, come check us out. Um, but yeah, Medium and LinkedIn. And GitHub too. You got yes, your own GitHub. slash Dorian Smiley. Yeah, it's yeah, like, don't forget yes. that. <laughs> GitHub, I almost forgot. Yes, I'm on GitHub. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we will put all your info in the show notes as well. So people can just awesome. click on that link and go right to you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I really okay. appreciate it. It's Thanks, been fun. Dorian. Bye. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Dorian Smiley for being our guest this week and to our sponsors, DeckSecure and Stream. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 123. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odele and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.